TTYA Talks, the podcast. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of TTYA Talks. For those of you that know or don't know, I started this platform as a way to connect successful women who are working across the creative industries and sports. So today's guest, guys, probably hear it in my voice, I'm so excited because for those of you who don't know, I started my career in visual merchandising and styling and I get so many questions about starting my brand and fashion. So, you know, hopefully we can maybe answer some of those questions on today's episode. So for today, I have not only a fashion editor, but a stylist, you know, some of her clients have included Jay Huss, Georgia Smith, Jordan Dunn, Naomi Campbell, Mary J. Blige, like real iconic, iconic to Nicki Minaj, you know, so it's not, it's not a small tin, yeah, it's not a small tin. So without further ado, guys, I'd love to introduce editor-in-chief of Wonderland magazine and incredible stylist, Tony Blake. Hello, my darling. Thank you, my sweetheart. Thank you. Well, like the platforms like really needed so i'm excited for this little chit chat oh, me too thank you so much for agreeing to do this and i think it's even it's it's great for us to kind of maybe start at the beginning because even being the fact that you're a 90s born baby and i feel like you've achieved so much i think the usual misconceptions of a fashion or editor-in-chief is usually you know middle middle class white you know, 58, 40 and above age-wise, you know. So to have someone who's young, enthusiastic, a woman of colour who's incredibly talented to be in a position that you're in, I think a lot of girls are going to find super inspiring. You know, tell us a little bit about you, your family heritage, where you grew up and your so, school yeah, education. First thing I'm going to say, my name is Tony Blazy Beckwear, so full name out. Hey. I'm Nigerian. Yeah, Tony Blazy, and they think it's maybe like a stage name I've made up or they don't know where it's from or whatever, but I had to drop the surname. So yeah, Nigerian descent, both parents are Igbo. I was born in London, raised in South London. Hey, Again, my South, South London people, give it to them. But not all savage <laughs> and crazy, I promise. Um, but yeah, no, in terms of just growing up, my grandma had a tailoring company in Nigeria. So I guess that's kind of the first um, elements of fashion in my family. That mm-hmm. My dad was always very stylish. She would like make matching outfits for us. And then my mum also, she just loved fashion. She... Um, she still loves it now. She owns her own brand called Udara Control, which I'm hopefully going to be able to develop more. Wow, like, amazing. On a side note, yeah, she's always loved it. And she's always pushed me to be like super creative and super just like expressive and like who I am as a person and style. So I guess in terms of family, there was all that kind of creative element. And obviously my older brother is a, bit, um, a video director. My little sister is a music singer. My younger brother is uh, into boxing. So we're all very much creative in our family. And then the other side are like doctors and all that jazz and everything. Um, and in terms of education, I studied at Central St. Martins. Um, it was a fashion communication course. Um, before that, I was at London College of Fashion doing a foundation course. So that was my into fashion in terms of like studying but I mean African parents obviously they wanted me to do like something you know concrete do something concrete and then do the whole plan B thing but I just didn't want that I was like you know what I love fashion I'm going to do this course and obviously when I got to St. St. Martin obviously one of the biggest fashion unis I was like okay this must be a sign from God Mm -hmm. yeah so then that was my journey into um fashion in general and then it was during my placement year at Central St. Martin's everyone was like yeah we're going to New York we're going to Paris we're going to be fabulous and I was like yeah I'm going to go to New York and be fabulous and I'm staying <laughs> in London and at the time obviously I was seeing what stylist I love and I was like stalking a stylist at, the, at that time called Matthew Joseph mm-hmm. who I love and he was doing like tweets I love in style and Sean Sampson shows and just doing all this amazing things that I was like okay this aesthetic I love and I actually admire mm-hmm. 
how can I work with him? And then he moved to Wonderland. And I was like, okay, great, this is how I'm going to do it. And then I went to Wonderland as a, as a little intern um, and obviously started assisting. I did like assisting with him for about, I think it was about three years. So it was quite a long yeah, time. Yeah, it is a long time. I guess at the time it wasn't, I think we live in a culture now where it's like, oh, I want to assist for like three months. And it's like, great, I can like style now. I'm ready. When it's like, I, at the, I think, yeah, at that time people were still, holding the system into like a high standard. So I did that for a long time and then started working my way up in the magazine in terms of coming from fashion editors and senior fashion editors to fashion director. Mm-hmm. Now the title that I have editor in chief. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it was just really quick, fast progression because yeah. it was a lot. The graft was in assisting and being patient and that time was invaluable because I learned what I liked, what I didn't like, what was my aesthetic. Um, what do I want to say in my images? Like, you know, do I want to be, I want to say a role model, but yeah, do I want to be a role model? Do I want to create images that are diverse? Like you learn so much in that assisting time. Obviously it sounds very much, oh, you just raise a rank, but it was a lot of like incubating like what my voice was. And I think that was one of the main reasons why, well, one of the main reasons for the success was knowing what my voice was. And for also having time to actually develop that. Just to chime in, because I feel like a lot of the questions that we get asked a lot as Nigerians as well is, oh, how do your parents feel about you doing something that was um, not academic? And I think it's interesting. And with this podcast, it, for me, it's been really important to show different people's journeys and different people's perspectives. Because even hearing, you know, the stories of your grandma and that your family is quite of a creative family um, still gives a different perspective because people have this notion that, okay, and even with stigmas as well, like, my parents are very much like you must get academic because for them you know in their eyes that was how black people were successful was doing something academic and I think for a lot of us now um we've been able to kind of change that narrative and change that role um just kind of touching a little bit on that do you feel like when you were at London College of Fashion or even at Central St. Martins with your peers, did you feel like you had any holdups or was there anything that you felt kind of was holding you back or did you really go into it feeling like, you know, actually I'm just, I've got an equal opportunity as everybody else? I think at London College of Fashion, I did it, I felt like an equal opportunity because it was, it was a bit more diverse, mm. I guess. But then when I went to St. Martins, I was the only black person in my class. And then the year below me only had one black person and the year below that only had one black person, which I found that whole, not to knock it or anything mm. like that, just more so like, I guess just at the time, not many, you know, young black kids were being pushed into being creative and it wasn't an avenue. And like you said, it wasn't a measure of success because I guess our parents growing up didn't see big, big black figures big, in these countries. Exactly. They were like, why would I push myself in that industry when I'm not seeing people like her? But in terms of limitations, I think it was a weird one for me. I think Central St. Martins opened so much in terms of culture. Mm. I think growing up in South London, I was like, and not in a bubble, but like I think when you go to like a creative industry and uni- I mean a university, it opens your eyes to like culture now. Yeah, and it's not just about where you're from; it's you're mixing with black, white, Asian, whatever it is, yeah. kind of thing. So the limitation there was like I think the pre the university, I guess I wouldn't say I wasn't cultured. I don't know how to phrase this. It was like the culture I knew was, was London only, and yeah and was only what you knew was only what you grew up knowing it was limited to what you knew yeah so that was a little bit of a limitation but then obviously once you immerse yourself into the culture of arts and creativity when it just made you know it just kind of just worked yeah. kind of thing but yeah I never really felt limited because I never ever came into fashion thinking oh I'm the only person here or oh no what they're going to do 
if they see me and what you know what I mean like yeah. I never had that massive I always came and being like you know what I've been given an amazing opportunity I've just been admitted into an amazing uni like the sky is you know the sky isn't even the limit now it's like let's push this let's and also prove my parents wrong mm-hmm. like my mum when she found out that I went into St. Martin she was like okay now she'll finally was like oh damn this is not a joke <laughs> thing <laughs> yeah maybe this is actually but I mean, they were also super supportive. So I won't say that I was proven wrong with them because I think they did trust my decision. But in my, the drive in me at that time was like, you know what? I have to make this the biggest it can be, or at least I can make, you know, like just make it into that. So they know mm-hmm. that it's good and they know that they don't need to worry and it's okay and whatever. And yeah. So. And an interesting point that you went, went on to, which I think is really important within this time that we live in, especially with the millennial kids in that how much you grew and how much you learned from interning. Um, I do feel that there is um, an abuse of intern- of interns that is kind of systematic to fashion and people just like kind of take people on to work for free or hardly any money for a long amount of time and then they don't really know um, exactly like where they stand. So I do feel like that happened for quite a long time. So that's why I feel like that also plays a part in why people are so reserved to interns. But I feel like internships are so insightful because like you said, it does give you the opportunity to see like what you like what you don't like and I do feel like now like millennials are not I wouldn't even want to use the word lazy because I feel like that's the borderline a bit rude but in terms of just like there isn't that culture of grafting of really showing what you're about like you even when you say that you followed Matthew Joseph for a long time there's so much what were some of the kind of the key skills that you learned within that interning stage um, of your career interning is great in general even if I just take my career out of the equation because mm-hmm. you don't realize how much you're actually learning like for example with a fashion internship it's like you start off as an intern okay you are returning stuff and you are dropping clothes but it's like people don't realize that like PRs talk so it's like if I when I'm interning or when I was interning or even if you are interning you go to the PRs you're the nicest one when you drop the clothes you're looking the best when you drop the clothes they're going to remember you you're making small talk you're kind of being like hey I'm some you know, from this magazine, or hey, I'm dropping this off with like people remember mm. personality in such an industry which is so connected to personalities and image and whatever it is. So it's like you don't know how much lasting effect you're leaving on that PR card or two, and then whatever. Because then it's like when they want to hire people now, like, oh, I remember that guy or girl that used to drop off blah, blah, blah. She was great, she was fun, she was this, she was that. So people forget that on every single level you're learning and you're actually helping your brand mm-hmm. so interning may feel like oh yeah they're taking you around London but no you are now knowing every single major PR in the UK I mean in London sorry they're knowing about you now so you're now getting all those contacts in terms of like knowing where they are and then on an assistant level when you're emailing you're now getting all the contacts for all the brands as well on set level you're seeing the highs and the lows of like having clients and balancing client work with magazine work you're learning how to structure your day properly. You're learning how to deal with, you know, you're seeing your boss liaising with info ad campaigns or adverts. You're learning how you need to navigate the situation, how you need to present yourself. You learn, you're actually, it's such a valuable mm-hmm. time. And for me, I learned so much. I learned so much on the job because fashion degrees don't actually teach you anything. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in like design, it's all very much self-driven mm-hmm. and you learn so much actually in experience. And for me, the experience just taught me how to just navigate myself as a brand and as a stylist in the right way and about research and not just, you know, I, I never wanted to create images where it was like, oh yeah, I put you in like a little bomber jacket and then cool, that's the, the styling story, that's done, that's what we're trying to say here. I always wanted to say something or feel like a story that 
people can relate to. And you learn that from a system. You learn about good research and learning how to, you know, know your brands, know your archive collections, know these things, because this will help you in creating these images that you want to create. Mm. If you keep it on a superficial level and you want the instant gratification of, you know, posting one picture on the gram and then that what gets gets the hype around you, people are going to see through your... I wouldn't even say talent. People are going to see through what's authentic. I speak a lot about authentic networking and building your network. Mm. And people always say, oh, you know, when you go to networking events, and I'm just like, you don't build your network necessarily from networking events. It's people that you meet every single day. And like you just said about going to, to PRs, connecting with them, like, yeah, they might also be looking for hiring. But as you climb up that ladder, you think about it like you're that somebody that's going to be useful to you for several years and you build a relationship with that person so organic networking is not just okay going to a, a networking drinks and meeting people it's just sometimes it's just people that you meet every single day and just keeping in contact with that person and building a good relationship with that person I feel like that's something definitely within fashion that builds whole brands and builds whole campaigns is your relationship with that artist with that brand with that you know editor you know so I feel like that's really something that's important to learn I know we did kind of speed through a little bit of your career kind of ladder. It would be kind of good to kind of go through it, you know, just a little bit step by step and just, you know, speak on a few points of each level of how it got you to the next level. Because it is literally like, not that a game of snakes and ladders, but it's like this door can open to this opportunity or working with this artist that can platform you to this brand. So it would be nice to kind of just go through your career journey just a little bit more and just unlock some of those gems. So yeah, so from the beginning, so like obviously interning was very much a basic intern and like I was, I was definitely going around London, calling my mum in the rain, nearly in tears, being like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> this is not beneficial. <laughs> and her being like, hang in there and whatever. And then I did that for about, I think it was about three months of just actual intern. And like, this is physical, like going out and doing stuff. At the time, I was working at this makeup counter called Black Up, which was in... Oh my um, gosh, really? Yes, it was in... Oh, where was I working? I was doing like Saturday and Sunday, yes, in Ilford. It was randomly the only part-time job I could get. Mm. So I was doing that. No, sorry, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And then Tuesday to Friday, I was interning. So that's how I was actually paying for it. So that's another key thing. It was like, okay, you do have the unpaid labor, which neither here nor there, not everything to get into the politics of that isn't that good. But if you want something enough, you're going to do it. So that was what my mindset. I was like, you know what? Seven days a week for about three months and I was tired. Mm. Like, but then obviously it showed my determination. It showed like what I wanted to do. And obviously I moved on to assistant level. Obviously you dropped the makeup counter job. <laughs> but you know, it was a time when YouTube was big and I was into beating my face and all that good mm-hmm. stuff. So like, that was why I loved that job too. Anyway, so going on assisting now, new responsibilities. Now you're like being, you know, you're that person's right hand now so you're assist you're doing schedules you're doing fashion week schedules you're emailing PRs or researching new brands a lot of admin work and then also on the flip side it is going to set making sure the set is immaculate for when you know your boss comes in and whatever making sure the day runs smoothly and then once I graduated from the whole assisting role I think the first one I got was fashion editor so now that was more of like you know like the baby cute little four-page stories and just see maybe what Tony could do and just little things just mm-hmm. even still then it wasn't that much stuff or who were maybe some some of the uh, talent that were in the magazine at that time that you worked with um I think I didn't have loads of clients and I can't tell you every single artist it was but I do remember what we like for example we have another magazine called Rollercoaster and we shot Georgia 
for an inside feature. I think it was about three, like four pages or so. And Blue Lights was the only song she had that, that out at the time. Obviously, I met her on that set and we just, you know, had a cute little friendship. And at the time, I wasn't really thinking about clients or anything like that. Yeah. I was just was like, oh, well, we're so cute and fun, like, or whatever. I mean, like, I think she was kind of one of the first clients I had at that time when she was first starting out. Um, but in my mind at that time, still, I wasn't very client-driven. I was all very much magazine, magazine, magazine. So it wasn't like a big thing for me in terms of like, getting clients, but in terms of just like navigating the magazine and how I can start doing more and start doing the covers and start doing the main fashion stories. So I think once I started to kind of prove myself at the magazine, they bumped it up to that like, senior fashion editor, which again is the same sort of role, just, you know, senior just jumped up. <laughs> same role, honestly. Um, and I don't remember, it was a very, I don't even remember what I was doing at the time. I think it was more like actual now 10 page stories of models and like being able to like send the mood board to the team and be like, oh, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. Mm-hmm. And then the progression from senior fashion editor to the fashion director was very, very quick. Mm-hmm. I think it was that like the team was getting a bit smaller. And then I guess I was proving myself more in terms of like the content I was shooting for the magazines from the publisher reading. I think you could see that I knew what the brand was. And I think when you're working with any sort of company, you need to really authentically know what that brand is or else it's just going to look so mismatched. You see so many companies, like companies hire people and you can just tell this person didn't know what, what their brand identity is. was. Yeah. Exactly. Or they've just paid XYZ to be a part of the project because they want the name, but they don't actually care that this person does not know your brand. Um, but I was lucky that I think my publisher saw that I could you could see I was really starting to know the brand a lot, mm-hmm. which obviously now progressed into the whole editor-in-chief role, which is a weird one because obviously I'm not, first and foremost, I'm not like a writer, so I don't do a lot of writing. Um, and I think the editor-in-chief role was more so, again, again being a, the face of the magazine, but also now having a much bigger say on who are going to be our covers, who are the inside features, along with obviously my team and stuff. I now started having actual big decisions now. Mm-hmm. And, being able to push, like, for example, when we did Nicki Minaj, they had done Nicki Minaj before I was at the magazine. And then second time around, I remember being like, we should definitely do it. Like, it was obviously before the whole, like, Cardi drama mm-hmm. or whatever. And stuff. Um, but it's funny, we did that. And then, like, it was the day before that whole drama happened. Our, our cover had already been released. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, bittersweet, not trying to highlight the drama, but, like, it was crazy making that decision to put her on the cover. because then like, the news and the press we got from just that one cover during that time kind of all worked out yeah even though it wasn't for like the greatest of like um source of um you know what i mean like it wasn't from, came from like the news was like more on the cover because they wanted to know what she said and like but for us it was like great people have seen these images. it was clickbait yeah well, it worked for you yeah, yeah. So, like as a brand we love her because we had done her before i was there but yeah so the editor-in-chief was more making more decisions and then now in my head i was like okay if i'm gonna have this role i need to make sure every single issue looks diverse and it's authentically diverse. Well, obviously, diversity is not just being black, it's also being black. It's, you know, diversity is a spectrum as well. So it's not, it goes beyond being like, oh, let's make sure we have black people. I'm like, no, let's make sure we have black, Asian, everyone included. And I'm really thankful that it progressed into that sort of level of um, decision-making and editing. So I guess that's where the editor-in-chief title comes in. But then now more and more I'm finding myself actually getting into the writing. I know we did like, a, I think when GT Bank, um, invited me to Nigeria that time last year. I wrote, wrote a little bit about that. So now I started getting more into the whole writing aspect of all the whole thing. And then, yeah, I guess, I don't know if that sums up in terms of like the progression, but now I think that role is just more decision-making. And now obviously now we're navigating in this whole new normal 
I'm like hosting a lot of like live Q and A's, and now actually getting back into the whole editor in chief role, even by just doing all these interviews and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely been a, been a good progression, and mm-hmm. uh, I do feel difference in roles. But yeah, the main difference is just just that decision making and being able to we should be shooting these people or we should be covering this certain artists and stuff like that, which is cool. So I know you touched on it a little bit and you were talking about mood boarding, but what is some of the researching and like for some some of us like I know what a mood board is, but there's probably gonna be maybe some people listening to this that won't know what a mood board is. Maybe just describe a little bit into so say for example, with that Nicki Minaj shoot or if you're doing any particular shoot, what kind of research and referencing goes into a, a mood board and what do you use the mood board for? So mood boards are basically every single shoot slash every single job you probably do mm-hmm. requires some sort of mood, mood board. board. Agreed. <laughs> but in, in terms of the magazine perspective, it is either the stylist or the photographer will create the mood board, or sometimes you may have a mood for the whole issue which is like the overrunning theme throughout the issue but in my in my um world it's more it either comes from like maybe if i've gone to the show or i've been looking at shows online and then i see like trend or i see something that i really like so sometimes the idea can come from just that very very simple how you emotionally respond to like a certain collection and are you seeing a trend or are you finding the trend but i don't follow trends but i sometimes try to find them when i'm at a show or you know looking at shows I'm looking at shows. Sometimes the mood board just comes from that. So then I start pulling images of like, even if it's like, oh, I don't know, um, a brand is doing loads of like feathers or whatever it is. And then I'm like trying to find that link. And then I'm going back. Then I start going to older shows, seeing, okay, who did this before, for example? I mean, feathers are kind of a shit example. But yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Kind of like niche or whatever it is. And then you're now trying to delve back to see if you've seen it before. And then now you start looking into like, okay, I was I have a pool of favorite photographers and like um, brands anyway, so I always delve into their archives when I'm googling and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, okay, what has David Lachapelle done, photographer? What's he done in terms of like that narrative or that trend? How can I now try and make a new shoot mm-hmm. based on these references? Mm-hmm. So it's a constant delve between like the new and the old to create these boards. And then in terms of like model stories, sometimes you will create a mood board based on what you've seen a model not do before. I think the main thing to always do is when you have a model story, don't think of it as like, oh, I get to shoot like Jordan or whatever it is. Look through their old images, look through their archive. What look have you seen them in? What look do you think you can bring to the shoot? And I think that always makes it successful because it's something that people haven't seen before, you know? Because people want... Well, sometimes it is just keeping it simple and classic and that's what you want to go for. Mm-hmm. And then you align yourself with a photographer that you know that is going to give you a certain look that you want. So yeah, I don't know if that describes the mood board, but yeah, it's, it's research and then you've all collated into one place and then that is the mood board that the hair and makeup person will reference, the photographer will reference and you yourself will put in those reference to. So yeah, it's like a visual poster of just like your idea. I was about to say, it's a visual poster of like how you're going to story tell, essentially. Yeah. And then, so I know you've mentioned now hair, makeup. What are some of the other departments that you work with? Because you don't just walk onto a shoot and it's just you and the artist. Like, who are some of the other people within the team that really help to make a shoot successful? God, literally everyone is super important in a shoot. Because like, I have times when I've got shoots and if I can't get a certain hairstyle, I'm canceling the shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Drum, drum. No, but it's time to make, but it's like, you know, different people are good at different things, or you've got, you know, a jack of all trades is good at one thing. But certain mood boards require a certain photographer, a certain style, I mean, yeah, a certain stylist, hair, makeup. When you kind of like don't care about one element, you always end up seeing it in the end result. 
So yeah, you've got your hair, you've got your makeup, you've got your nails as well, girls, because you don't want these editorials looking like the nails looking stubby, sis. Yeah. You've, got that <laughs> yeah. you've got a photographer and you've got the stylist. Um, those are the main people that you work with in the team. And in terms of like the whole mood creation and stuff, it's funny. People think that stylists are just stylists in terms of they just put clothes on and they just pull it a day and then they just walk off. But like, a lot of people don't know, even with my shoots, for example, I do a lot of the creative direction of my shoots in general most of the time um and then I would send it to a photographer being like and then in my brain I'm like okay which photographer do I know that would be great for this okay then I reach out to that photographer then we now then the photographer now responds with his new creative vision because obviously he he or she sorry is um you know works in image format mm-hmm. and everyone's know, got their own idea everybody interpretates yeah. everything differently bouncing back so with style it's funny people just think you just kind of oh yeah like i'm gonna go to PR and pick this top and then put it on the model and then i'm like bye guys have a great day it's like no that's some of us actually creative direct everything down to what nail shape we want what hair we want or whatever it is so it's definitely like a bounce back of ideas throughout the whole team down to hair down to makeup to make it amazing mm-hmm. and another thing to note is always like Sometimes certain mood boards just don't work for certain models. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes you need to align your mood with your model. I always find that sometimes I pick the model I want to shoot and then I make the mood board. Mm, or sometimes I make the mood board and I'm like, oh, actually, this girl will be good for this or that girl will be good for this. Mm, so it works vice versa. Like doesn't. It's, yeah. And I think that's one thing to talk. To, that's an interesting point about fashion is things always have to be adaptable because even when you go on that on set that day, you know, maybe that make. There's been times when I'm gone on set and you know the models come and her her hair is completely different to her her card you know right. so it's like the things have to be always completely adaptable I think that's something that's important to know or you have like this massive makeup look you wanted to do or whatever then the makeup part is blessed spends like three hours doing it and then you look at it and you're like this ain't it <laughs> you have to change this ain't it I'm sorry I'm, I've, had it, I've done it a few times and I felt really really bad but like vision like the end thing is what you know is so important and if you're working with people that are actual genuine creators they don't mind changing that but like, you know they want these images for their portfolio they want them mm-hmm. to stand the test of time you know so like yeah you have to be adaptable i remember one i did one of my but actually one of my first biggest bigger covers was i did neelam a few like when i was like mm-hmm. but i think i was like senior fashion and sort of fashion love neelam. so we're talking about neelam gill guys Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, she was a good friend of mine. Well, she still is. Um, and I think she was like holding her boob like on one picture, and then I mean, on yeah, for the cover, she had like this fly high like Fendi boot on. Give it to them, sis. Yes. Yeah, it was a good one at the time. I was still even developing my aesthetic then, anyway. But what I was trying to say is that one of my early ones was my life of first. She um, was the model that I did at one time. And I remember we she came over her natural hair, um, and we gave her these like braids down to her hip on the day of the shoot. I'll never forget. It took like I want to say like six hours. Yeah, I was about to say, wow, that's already cut into the whole shoot day. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have done that, but I was so obsessed with her having like this braids on the cover and having braids, and I hadn't seen her in braids in like you know, I don't think I've seen her in braids in her editorial. Well, like it goes to show that you, when you're working with such a creative team, like hey, it did take four or five hours, but because she's such a professional, she you know the pictures were done in like what maybe two or three. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a lot, it definitely again. Sis, I hope she kept. Hard. I hope she kept those braids in afterwards, mate. I tell <laughs> you, I think she loved it actually. She did, and I think I saw on her story she kept it for like a couple more days or whatever. But yeah, she was looking at me like, this bitch is crazy. And I'm, like, I'm going to sit in the corner and do my email. <laughs> Let me know if you're ready. 
But no, and I still do love these those pictures to this day. So, so what's a typical what's a typical work day for you in the office? On let's let's say for example on the day that you have a shoot, what what does that kind of day look like? So pre quarantine, <laughs> pre quarantine. I'll say what quarantine is, but pre quarantine was um, so obviously you come in and then you speak to your team in terms of like okay, so we've got this issue to do. We'll all go and bounce ideas together. Well, luckily we all collectively always are able to chime in on ideas. It's not just me being like I want this this and this and it's done. Like it's more so like we all collectively bounce around ideas. And then for example, if I've got a shoot, I'll tell you two things. There was one time I was doing a day in the life of one time I was doing a shoot. It was for Sierra and it was in LA and I had to do it on FaceTime. This was before quarantine. Wow. And I remember going to work, having my normal work day, you know, scheduling the meetings, prepping for other stories that were happening, doing reach outs for talent and stuff. Obviously going home and having to wait, wait until LA woke up and then staying up to FaceTime. And I had an assistant on set at the time and they were like, okay, we're doing this look and we're doing this and then we're doing that. And then probably we're going to bed at like three or whatever. Oh, I don't know. oh so you heard it here first. This one is doing virtual styling. It's the, it's the new wave now. You don't even have to be in the same country in the same time zone. But I was, but I mean, a lot of times, because sometimes with people forget that a day in the life where you do do the, content creation for the magazine but then as a stylist you also have clients to balance as well so it's like when I'm getting ready for a shoot for example I would obviously have an assistant that I would send them like okay this is what I want to be requested for the shoot and in terms of like the prep like with shoots it probably takes about minimum a week mm-hmm. with, uh, in terms of even in the uh, PR following up following up again <laughs> still following up and then finally being oh this look is confirmed whatever people think like you just kind of email and then it's like great the look's here when it's really sometimes you need to email a week to two weeks in advance so like your day in the life sometimes is always a triple down of what you what you're planning in like two three weeks in advance or even like a week in advance when it comes to shoots but yes yeah, so i'll kind of obviously delegate what needs to be done in terms of like what we need for the shoot what actress we need to pull what we need to do and then in between that, you might need to send a mood board to a photographer who's got, who you've commissioned to do something in New York and you're all not physically there and you've got another stylist that you've commissioned to be on that set. But you need to make sure it looks like the brand, so it, like, you know, looks, um, identifiable, identifiable to the magazine and stuff like that. So you've got to send them a mood board. Mm-hmm. Then you may have clients that you're trying to get or clients that you already have that you need to now create mood boards for too, all during the same day <laughs> while also, <laughs> While also trying to uh, make shoots happen, be on the ground, know what's popping, know, you know, what musicians should we be featuring. That element of research comes into that. Also, what are your competitors doing in terms of like musicians and covers and everything? Making sure they're trying to be, you know, the first or at least be in that conversation as well. So it's very varied. Every day changes, but I would say it's definitely long. It's definitely long in terms of the preparation. Prep is the main thing. Yeah, I was about to say to you, because prepping, prepping is probably 90% of doing a shoot. Um, but I did want to touch upon, before I kind of go into what some of your favourite brands are, um, I did actually really want to touch upon like how you kind of, one, source which talent that you want to work with and how you um, approach them on the day. Because I'm even from past experience, sometimes you're lucky if you get to do a fit with them before, if you get to, you know, have a catch up with them before. But sometimes because of their schedule, you just don't. So everything is kind of sometimes maybe a free for all on the day or not a free for all, but it's like trial and error on the day. How do you kind of, what are some of the steps that you take just to make sure that you've got some, all of your bases cover and that just to keep your client confident to know that you know what we might not have had a fitting but 
you know, I know you've got this kind of vibe. <laughs> no, yeah, sometimes you don't, even with shoots, though, sometimes you, you you don't ever really have fit in. You mm. just get sent over measurements and you're like, great. I think in terms of clients and stuff, it's like, again, mood board. That's always the most important thing. Let them have some sort of visual reference that they can look at and be like, hey, this is what we're working towards. And that same mood board gets updated of, okay, this is what we've actually got. Mm. So what I think, you know, this is the combination that I think would work together. I think just keep your client informed that you know what you know what their visual identity is, and that is by mood board. I think that's the main thing when it comes to client relations. Is just if they're going to trust you, they'll trust you by like what you're showing them, and you know how on the ball you are in terms of like aligning them with certain brands, for example. Having that knowledge to be like, oh, maybe you should wear this brand because you never know in the future you could get a campaign from that or whatever it is. So I think it's more so like. Yeah, just keeping them informed. And I think the mood board is definitely the, the bread and the butter. Because if you don't have anything to show you, like, you just turn up, like, they don't know what. You can pull out, like, I don't know, like a purple tutu or something. And then they're like, this is not what I wanted. So communication is definitely key. Yeah. And sometimes big. when you're working with big talent, is it that you, are you communicating directly with the talent? Or sometimes are you communicating with that talent's team? Most of the time we do communicate with the team or sometimes you may actually communicate with the actual talent stylist as well because obviously the bigger the talent gets, sometimes you need to, for the talent to feel comfortable, you need to work as a team. So you need to actually liaise with someone that they already work with to also get their vision. I think people do get obsessed with being like, it's my vision and my own. It's, like, it's actually quite a team mm-hmm. effort in terms of liaising. You, you, you don't have time to, I mean, not that you don't have time, but like, if, for example, yeah, like Nikki, you don't have time to like call her like, hey girl, what do you want? Like, <laughs> I wish I could do like, hey girl. But then luckily, like you do get to speak to the stylist and you get to speak to the team and then you also send through your ideas and your mood and stuff like that. Um, and then they can relate to the, um, relate to the talent and they can, you know, be like, yes, no, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. But rarely you do get to like direct talk. Most of the time it is through teams and stuff like that. But if you do your research and nothing, research more into the, the visuals of that person, it should be quite easy because then you've already, you should already have kind of an idea of what they like based on that and how you can elevate it too. I think one of the questions that I get asked a lot, and I'm, I'm sure this one might be difficult, um, is kind of setting your day rate and, you know, the business around um, having your side clients, because obviously your clients are built separately to the work that you do for your magazine. So where did you kind of, what is it because you maybe worked with other stylists or, you know, being at the magazine, you kind of had an insight to what maybe some people's day rates were because you're obviously hiring a lot of freelancers there. Did that help you in determining what your day rate would be? Like what, how did you kind of come to that? Because people ask me that question all the time. Like, I don't know how much just to charge. And I'm just like, you, you it's all from experience, but also it's like knowing what the going rate is as well. With it. How did you kind of, what steps did you use or how did you kind of gauge that where your day rate would be? Well, this question, I think it depends on if you are if you have like agency representation or not. So if you don't have agency representation, I think you have to keep your air on the ground with other stylists and with just your industry in general being like, you know, if you've got a good relationships and friendships, you, you, you know, people shouldn't be too uptight to be like tell you like oh hey you did this thing I'm trying to like rate something for myself give me some tips like what was your this what was your that um and that's always the best way to know to kind of navigate okay what's the base rate and then you know you add a little bit more because of who you are a little bit of tax <laughs> on top <laughs> add a little bit of tax. and also then it depends on like the, the days how many days you need to practice do you need assistance do you need um travel there's mm. all these are 
involved in the day rate and involved in like whether it's like the day rate and then extra kind of thing. So as long as you keep it on ground and make sure you're keeping informed in terms of like what the general base is, then you can kind of gauge it on that. And then obviously also as your work gets bigger and your portfolio gets bigger, then you know the rate needs to Everything needs to be more. matching, sis. Everything needs to be aligning. You know, a little bit of more seasoning into it. Feel me? Oh um, no, but then also then again, flex side agency representation is different because then the day rate is usually a uh, discussion with you and your agent now. So they may propose that the rate being like, I think you should do it for this whatever. Then you usually go back and be like, Yeah, that's kinda good or that's too low or blah blah blah. But then also and then they also say and take into consideration, you know, like how long it's gonna take you to prep. Also, agency, agency representation, take into consideration the 20% of that as well. Mm-hmm. So that all plays into effect. So there's the two main like ways to navigate the whole rate thing. is either with an agent or without, it's kind of keeping your air on the ground. Agreed. Because I think a lot of people do ask that question on how do you decide on what your rate should be. And that's a question that I did want to ask, considering that there is so many factors. And I, and I love that you touched upon like your prep days. Like People always forget it's not just a day that you're shooting. It's, okay, your prep days before and your prep days after because you've got to take all them clothes back, sis. So you've got to think about your time. Time is money. So, you know, look at what the going rates are. Like you said, don't be afraid to ask what your going rates are if there's anybody that you know within the industry. But also the internet's a good source as well. Nowadays, it's a good source as a way to kind of find the information that you need on a more like surface level what are some of the brands that you're loving at the moment and why i'm loving at the moment (laughs) rick owen i'm loving i feel like every time i go to that show i just feel i don't know like like, everything about it just always so like just different futuristic sci-fi everything just so good i love rick owens i love sax pots which is really cool i love how they just kind of like not came out of nowhere, because that's where to say, but I don't know. They just kind of really just navigate the industry where people just become such a sort of um, piece, the whole, like, you know, the fur jackets with the fur cuffs and stuff. But that's really fun. Mm-hmm. I always say Gucci because I feel like they've been able to navigate the industry in terms of now Alessandro's there. People are so much into the brand and into the story and into the narrative. Accessories always on point. I feel like they're just so... And obviously the whole Dapper Dam thing was a really amazing getting him on board. I think that really kind of reintroduced that brand in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, who else do I love? Jacquemus. Oh, I love Jacquemus. Yes, babes. Give it to them. He wants a new best friend I'll join. <laughs> because I just feel like he just gets style when it comes to men and women. And he understands simplicity, but it's also effective and it's sexy and it's young and it's cool and it's old. And it's just everything all in one. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And the palette's Palettes go from like muted colors and they make have like an acidic. It's kind of like something for everyone in that brand. Yeah, agreed. Um, One of my favorite brands as well. Also like GCDS, Italian streetwear brand, really super super fun. Don't take themselves seriously. That like, they have like anime thigh high boots and like Hello Kitty accessories. All they're just fun fun stuff, which kind of keeps the whole thing light hearted. Marine Siri which is amazing, another one in Paris. She's super, super cool. I've been on the whole sustainability and, like, upcycling kit for quite a long time. Very, very, like, makes fashion. Okay. I have, yeah, lo- I actually have quite a few. Let's talk about fashion. <laughs> Let's talk about fashion week then because people think that fashion week is so glamorous. And don't get me wrong, it does have its glamorous elements and perks to it, you know, but it's actually time-consuming, one, and two, and it's very hectic. Um, what are some of the things that you wish people knew you know bts about fashion week because a lot of what we see on instagram is front row and 
you know, and a bottomless drinks, the bar, the bars overflowing at the after parties and showroom visits, you know, all glam, glam, glam. But what's the actual work, the business element of Fashion Week? You know, because what a lot of people don't know is that a lot of the editors and the buyers use Fashion Week to see what's coming up so that you know what you can pull for your shoots that you have coming up, which yeah. a lot of people that I think don't actually know. They just think Fashion Week is just there as one glitz and raz. How, how does Fashion Week actually affect you as a business so yeah on a surface level like you said it is a, the glamness it's the freebies it's the parties and all that all that jazz um but on a business level like fashion week is intense because it's like you're going from i don't always do all of them but usually i always do paris london milan or whatever sometimes i do new york so anyways that's still a good chunk of time that you're not at home number one you're living out of a suitcase and you're not just going you may have a day where you've got seven shows to go to. And there may be ones that you like extremely love and there's ones that you have to go to because that, for example, there may be an advertisement in the magazine or you may be trying to build a new relationship with them or, you know, you want to just show your face to be like, show you support it because that also usually ends up in them being like, hey, thank you for the support. And then it can start a conversation which, you know, don't know what it's going to lead to in terms of for the business and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think the BTS of it is that it's a lot of hard work. And it is literally you, like, luckily we do have a car when, when we go to Fashion Week for, like, Paris and Milan and London and stuff like that. But it's you, like, changing. I'll be literally, like, in a hill and, like, changing to that man <laughs> just before the show. And then the driver's like, we're here now. I'm like, oh, my God. And my foot is burning because I've been out since, like, 8.45 because the first show was at 9. And then there's, like, you didn't have no time to, like, go back to the hotel to change or whatever. Then it's already, like, 4. And then, like, my toes are about to fall off or whatever. It's such a long long day and then you're hungry and then like you, you don't have time so that luckily the showroom visits are actually your time to eat too because then luckily there's little sandwiches out and you're like oh my god thank you so much and you're like <laughs> you've got like five in your hand because that that's probably the time you're, only time you're going to eat until dinner it definitely like takes a toll on like your just self and like your health because it, it looks glamorous but it is literally so 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 intense mm -hmm. And again, like you said, it is finding the trends and finding what brands we should maybe potentially start shooting and little things like that and doing a very on-ground research as well, which is great. You do get to keep up to date with everything. So, yeah, it's, it's more tasking than it looks. It is. And you touched on your agent before. I just wanted to bounce back really quickly because I think it's important. A lot of people always ask me, um, how do you pick which agent is best for you? And I've even made mistakes in the past where I've picked agents that weren't necessarily the best for me, had my best interest at heart. Um, how did you go about picking your representation and, you know, just negotiating to make sure that, you know, they were kind of the best company to go with for you? And who was your agent? My situation was actually quite a natural progression because I had a friend, well, even I had a friend, I'm not saying this wrong, we kind of met by chance. We were supposed to be both doing this shoot and then it completely flew all the way to Atlanta. I went to who it was, but it completely fell through because he was um, representing a photographer called Charlotte Rutherford. So he was representing her, but then we kind of kept in touch. So I'm with LMC worldwide. But in terms of advice for anyone who wants to pick an agent, I think, I guess, note down your top agencies in terms of your field, in terms of like, I don't know, maybe there's a certain style that this agency is like, oh, I want to be aligned with that as an agency and then what and also look at that agency and look at the stylist and whoever they have already on their roster and see how your work actually fits as well because you don't want a situation where it's like you end up being at an agency that your work really just doesn't fit in with that so when they start getting them they don't want to get anything because your work just doesn't align with you know the kind of brands and 
jobs that come through the agency. I mean, yeah, and I agree with you. Another tip is definitely have someone that has your best interest in heart, mm-hmm. at heart, too, because I think that's, like, super, super important and believes in your growth and wants you to build you up. I think that's the main thing because you obviously have to flip side. You have agents that just kind of want to take the cut and then that's it. And you have agents that actually build you into that proper brand. Right, and that always be the long-term end goal, mm-hmm. you know, because jobs come and go, clients come and go, you know, all these things come and go. But when you're, if you've got an agent that's actually building you as a brand, that will withstand the test of time because it's like no one can take your brand away from you. No. Agreed. And aside from fashion, who's kind of like your girl tribe? You know, what do you do to kind of make sure that you're checking in with your mental health? And so I see a lot of at the time on Instagram that I see you always working now. And you know, who's your kind of girl tribe aside from your fashion industry friends? Well, I have like one of my long term friends, my friend Shamina. I've literally known her since I was like in year seven. So she's definitely one of my main people because I feel like I'm even if I message her and I'm like, I said, email, look at me living my life and work. <laughs> even if I message her and I say, oh my God, I'm so freaked out. I don't think I'm doing this. I don't think it's doing that. She's like, bitch, chill the hell out because she doesn't come. She's not in a, she's into like beauty and all that sort of stuff, but she's not into like, well, not that she's not into it, but she's not in like a fashion space where it's about mm-hmm. caring if 25 didn't come and all these silly things are actually in the bigger scheme of things doesn't mean that much. So she always, well, like she's one of my friends that keeps me kind of grounded because I could be freaking out being like, I'm not doing enough. And she's like, hun, look at everything. You, you need to chill out. So I think it's important to have um, friends before fashion and friends before the industry that just know you for you, you know? Because anytime you're like freaking out and just being like super extra, they can kind of like pump the brakes and be like, okay, you need to chill, yeah. like completely chill. And in terms of just like self-care and stuff, I guess the whole exercising and just buying loads of things on Amazon during quarantine has been my favorite favorite thing to do. Amazon's taking all my money, I'm telling you. Same, sis, um, same, same. Kind of weirdly, like, I kind of kick off of the door ringing and it's my Amazon package. <laughs> I'm actually kind of loving it <laughs> during this time. Um, and then obviously I've been able to like, obviously make a lot of good friends during in within the industry too who are also creative um like izzy from bossy london who's mm-hmm. amazing DJ. Uh, my friend essie who works at nike at the moment she's like women's wear fashion connoisseur designer yes. there at the moment. um uh erin who's a painter erin alexa she does a lot of painting oh, she's amazing. yeah so many like so many amazing people i've met even my cousin also keeps me grounded. She's into YouTube right now. Mm-hmm. She's also my kind of accountability partner. She'll message me being like, where's your YouTube video? Where's your video? And I'm like, sis, can you come down? <laughs> like, can you stop coming for me? Can you chill? Can you chill out? Oh, that's so um, amazing. So what's next for you, T? I'm not going to say too much, girl. Oh. I'm not going to spit a lot out. Um, but no, I definitely, I'm moving more into the whole ownership thing. So I definitely do want to start looking into ways in which I can just have more ownership in terms of me as a business, me as a brand, um, like I'm really, I mean, a lot of people keep telling me that like, I should start my own brand in terms of like fashion and stuff. So like, you know, I'm having, having a few thoughts there and stuff. But I think I definitely um, want to move more into like creative direction as well. So I feel like mm-hmm. I've been doing it for so long, low key, even though it just feels like silent. I think it's something that I could definitely do more on creation for brands and being more of that kind of like role. I always love styling, but I definitely do want to start developing onto that a bit more um, casting in terms of like campaigns and like shoots and stuff for like, you know, external brands and stuff like that. But I think the business thing is kind of the main thing I'm also really starting to look at more. So I think like 
you know, if I'm trying to make these millions, girl, I'm not going to make it. If, Sis, got more if it doesn't girl. make money, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You know, these multiple streams of income got to come from someone, girl. Multiple streams of incomes. Yes. Every level. Um, and also, I do want to start doing more, like, I love conversations like this because I feel like I'm, I'm learning how good I am at speaking and also I feel like articulating myself. And I do want to start, it's not just about the position that I'm in right now, it's about people who are looking up to me too. So I do definitely want to plan some sort of like webinar or some sort of like, obviously during quarantine, just ways to teach people. And hopefully when we start navigating this new normal, actually have a physical event where it's just like very much giving back. You know, obviously making a bit of coin as well, but let's be real. Yes. But also, no, I feel like I've had a lot of varied experience and I've worked with like some of the best and the best in the industry. I do have a lot of insight mm-hmm. navigating a world and also an industry which not, there's not many of us in the industry, you know. And I think people, you know, people looking up at even you, for example, and me, for example, will learn from like doing some sort of thing. I don't know what it is right now, but I am definitely thinking about that during and post quarantine at the moment. Yeah, I think I agree because that's even part of the reason why I started this platform because I just felt like a lot of the time we're dominated by fear and it's not fear, intentional fear. A lot of it is generational fear, but that's probably another whole podcast altogether. But um, in in when I say fear, it's in like not knowing or not feeling like they have the skills and what is so inspiring about your story. And I, and I don't want to put, put it on the age thing, but I think it's really a big deal, you know, to be the age that you are, to be born in the 90s and to be an editor in chief. I think before, in my day anyway, that was unheard of, you know, so I think what you've achieved is so inspiring to girls and so empowering as well to know that okay well actually I can work my way up and I think the important thing about showing people's journeys is everybody's journey is different you know some people know what they want to do some people fall into what they want to do some people start by interning and work their way up to where they are now so I think I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. I think it's super inspiring to see all you've achieved, you know, just even some of the talent that you've worked in. And if anybody wanted to follow up with you and kind of see more of your work, what are your social media handles? Well, at the moment, I'm just on Instagram. So it's just Tony Blaze, E-O-N-I-B-L-A-Z-E. Contemplating Twitter, but that's for another, again, that's for another discussion. Um, but in terms of just direct reach to me, that's always the main way because I'm, you know, always on that app anyway. Um, my emails in my bio always say to people if they want, like, to email me advice. I'm like, I ain't doing anything else during this time. <laughs> so, like, pause, talk to me. Um, my website's coming soon, which is really amazing. Um, and also, LMC, my profile in terms of my portfolio and stuff is also in my bio if you want to see my work and stuff like that. But, yeah, the main thing is just Tony Blaze. And, yeah, the website is coming, girl, girls and guys. <laughs> But yeah, those are the main ways to get in touch with me. But no, I really appreciate the support 100%. And I do hope people know as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us your time. We appreciate you. And and I'm really excited to see what you come out with next. I'm I'm, I'm clocking and I'm washing. Ah, thank you. (laughs) All right, my angel. Thank you. All right, I'll see you later. Okay, guys, that's been another episode of TTYA Talks with me, Irene TTYA. Again, my socials are at Irene, I-R-E-N-E, TTYA, um, if you want to get in contact with me. Thank you again for listening. We out, y'all.